New York City is home to a resilient crowd, one that bounces back from all kinds of adversity, whether it be a storm like Sandy or an attack like 9-11. This city is full of survivors, and in this next half hour, we're meeting some of them. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm a New York City is home to a lot of survivors, big and small. So it's no surprise that a super weather-resistant cockroach has found its way to the Big Apple. The non-native species was recently discovered on the elevated park in Lower Manhattan, known as the High Line. Dr. Jessica Ware is an insect biologist at Rutgers University, and she's studying these resilient creatures. She joins me now on the phone. Dr. Ware, welcome. Thanks for having me. So a brand new cockroach has moved into New York City, huh? Yes, exactly. We're not exactly sure when it got here um, and how many of them there are, but we know that it's here. Now tell us more about this cockroach. Um, this is a cockroach that is usually found in Asia. Um, it's native to Japan um, and has been invasive in China for a few years. There are researchers in Japan that have done some work that suggest that this cockroach is able to withstand extremely cold temperatures where um, they did some experiments where they took nymphs and submerged them in ice for several hours and within a few minutes at room temperature they were up and running. So we know that they're cold adapted and they're ready for New York winters. That's unlike the cockroaches that we'll find in apartments in New York City, huh? Yeah, there are other... This new cockroach is from the same genus as many of the ones that you're used to seeing in New York, Paraplaneta. But the ones that we're used to seeing, Paraplaneta americana, um, are actually native to Africa, um, and they really require warmer, um, you know, in the inside of people's dwellings. So this new cockroach was actually discovered on the High Line, right, the elevated park in New York City. Yes, that's true. How do you think it got there? We're not sure. I mean... We've had a couple of um, brainstorming sessions to try and figure it out. The problem with New York, with kind of the New York, New Jersey area, is that because we are a major port, we have a lot of things coming in and out. And so often, you know, hitchhikers can, uh, can arrive that way. And we've certainly seen lots of examples of other invasive insects that have come in through shipping. It's also possible that it came in through ornamental plants because lots of, you know, cockroaches and other insects kind of can be stowaways in soil and, and you know, at nurseries and, and plant material. So this cockroach was discovered by who on the High Line? There was an exterminator um, that was working on the, on the High Line that discovered um, this cockroach and wasn't sure, um, wanted confirmation that it indeed was something new and different. And they said to a colleague of ours, who's our co-author, Lyle Bus, um, at the University of Florida, um, who identified it, just by looking at its body parts and thought that it was this Japanese cockroach. Um, and then they sent it to our lab where myself and my graduate student, we work on cockroaches, and we were able to do genetic barcoding and determine that, indeed, this is a new record for the United States. It is Parasona japonica. How likely is it that this cockroach is contained on the High Line, or do you think it's spread elsewhere? It's a really good question that we don't know the answer to. I mean, there's a couple of possibilities. If we happen to have been there right at the invasion time, it's possible that it's, you know, still restricted to the High Line. But that usually doesn't happen. Usually people don't end up finding invasive taxa until they've already, until they've started to build up a little bit. So the other real possibility is that it already is starting to spread around the area, you know, around the area of the High Line and perhaps in other parts of New York City and other parts of New York. 
All right. Dr. Ware, anything else about this cockroach that you find particularly fascinating? Well, I think it'll be really interesting to see how um, this particular species interacts with the species we already have. Competition is always, competition for space and competition competition for resources is always there in any ecosystem. And I'm, I'm really I'm eager to kind of watch and see how this plays out. It's like watching a movie. Dr. Ware, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Jessica Ware, entomologist and assistant professor at Rutgers University. The resilient cockroach she's studying got us thinking about other survivors in New York City, those of the human variety, those like Cheryl Smith and Andres Morales. A warning to our listeners, this next story has some descriptions of violence, so if you're with small children or just don't want to hear it, now might be a good time to take a break. Cheryl and Andres found themselves in an unexpectedly dangerous situation one otherwise ordinary night in April of 2007. I was working nights, and uh, she had a late day. I had been teaching a late a night class and just had stayed a little bit after the class to grade papers, so I was getting home later than usual. I just remember it was, you know, it was a warm evening. And we were going to meet at my apartment, and I took the bus home. I came home on motorcycle and I didn't expect to see her on the street. I was parking my bike. And I was walking up my street. It was 93rd Street. I see her down the street. I could tell it's her. And it just seems like she's outside talking with somebody. The two silhouettes down the street. I was just about three doors from my house when someone had sort of came across the street and uh, just approached me with a knife and said, you know, I've got a knife. Don't scream. Don't just give me your money. I can't tell. You know, it it might be the neighbor walking the dog or something like that. And he took my purse, and he was putting them inside of a a plastic bag. He put my whole purse in a plastic bag, and he was taking my jewelry. I had a bracelet and and a ring, and he was taking those and putting them in the bag when I looked up and I saw saw Andres. I hear her scream, bloody murder, you know, the top. I never heard anyone scream like that. Somebody help me. Andres came running, and I think he, he he was just got off his motorcycle. He even still had his helmet on. As That's what I remember. He certainly had his motorcycle jacket on and came running down the street. As I got closer, I figured out it wasn't the neighbor. She told me he had her purse. So I saw the plastic bag, and I told him to give me the bag. So we started to brawl. He told me... Uh, I'm going to kill you now. And I tell, I tell them, you're not going to do S. It was weird. I was punching him like a fight, like he would punch somebody in a fight. And I thought during the brawl something wasn't right. He had been reaching around the back. And I was like, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, how is he? Why is he doing that? I didn't know I was being stabbed. I didn't know he had a knife. I think he meant to do what he did, which was to puncture alone. Someone had heard me screaming and, and from inside the building, I had, and people, a couple people at that point had called 911. And at, I, at some point I got my phone, and call, I don't know how I got it, and called 911 as well, um, because I was on the phone with 911 when the police pulled up. I didn't know what happened. You know, he took off. By that time, the cops came. I was out of breath. 
for some inexplicable reason. Like I couldn't believe how out of breath I was. He sat down on the on the stoop, and I don't. I neither of us realized he had been stabbed. And the the police pulled up, and they were said, "Get in the car." To me, because they wanted to go see if they could find him, because he had just taken off. We didn't find him, and they were in, meanwhile in communication with the ambulance. The ambulance was there and realized what. And by the time they got me back to in front of my building where he was. He was in the ambulance, and they were starting to treat him, and they took us both to the hospital. They had to put um, a tube to reinflate right, his lung. Right, to blow me back up. So it, they, put, they brought him into the ER, and was, they were working on him right away. It was a couple of days before the lung blew back up, maybe, and then they, they held me a little bit longer just to make sure it held up and the, and the hole closed up. When something like that happens to you, how frequently do you revisit it in your mind? Cheryl says. I think at the beginning a lot, and it had a big impact. I mean, when we had decided to get married and, and, and you know, live together, we were trying to decide where to live. And I, I kind of, in many ways, wanted to stay in that apartment, but we, we left. So up until the point of leaving, I revisited it a lot. And after that, not very much. Don't really think about it that much anymore. What about you? Yeah, for a while, I was a little freaked out. I would still, uh, you know, walk home at night sometimes, and I was a little freaked out about things that would go bump in the night. I, I remember one night I was walking back. I, I worked relatively close to to the apartment, and um, I got scared of my shadow, the reflection in the, in the night streetlights. You know, I was a little spooked for a while. I asked the couple, now married with a young son, if that night brought them closer together. I think so. I mean, we were about just over a year into our relationship at that time. We were pretty serious, but it, it did feel like it cemented something with us. I mean, you know, I think it's a rare thing that someone does something like that for you. And it had a happy ending. He was okay. It didn't really change how I saw him. You know, I saw him the same way, but it, it changed. It clicked something in my head of, well, this is really someone who, you know, you can count on. I mean, really, when push comes to shove in the worst moments, that he's going to stand up and step up for you and protect you. As far as survivor stories go, Andres is pretty humble. You hear real survivor stories, you know, where people have to cut their own, their own arm off. And I think it was just... A little bit of luck, the way things turned out. I mean, I did have a moment where I was sitting there waiting for an ambulance, and I was like, "This is how it. This is how it all get. <laughs> is this it?" But I never thought for sure that that was it. Of course, you know what did I know at the time? <laughs> but I never felt like that was the end. And. That was Cheryl Smith and Andres Morales. Andres received the Carnegie Hero Award in 2008 for his act of heroism. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. This morning, we're talking with survivors, ordinary people who were put in extraordinary circumstances and lived to tell about it. 
This month marks the five-year anniversary of the miracle on the Hudson. United Airways Flight 1549 made a crash landing into the Hudson River on January 15, 2009, after colliding with a flock of geese that crippled its engines. Joining me now in the studio is Dave Sanderson, who was a passenger on that remarkable flight. Dave, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me today. So how has your life changed as a result of the miracle on the Hudson? My life changed dramatically. At that time in my life, I was really focused on earning money and on business, and I sacrificed a lot of time at home. And that day put things in perspective for me, where now I focus a lot more time to make sure I'm with my family and I think live more of a life of gratitude. So what did you do when you first arrived home after that incident? Well, that was pretty amazing because I saw my family at the airport. They made arrangements to meet me at the gate, and that was very emotional. But what was what really happened is that the CEO of the Red Cross was with my family, and she had experienced a plane crash. So she and I connected on that level, but she was really supporting my family. So when I got home, they had already been a little prepped about he may be um, – little sensitive on some things. So when I got home, they, my family really took care of me tremendously well. I mean, it was, it was hectic. We had a lot of media exposure, but they, uh, they were they're super supportive and understood what I was going through. Give me an example of one thing you are now doing differently as a result of what happened. I've changed my schedule dramatically, where I schedule now based on family events instead of business. So I schedule everything for my family first and work business around it. And Canley, if there's a business situation that has to take place during a family event, it needs to be moved. It'll be sacrificed. How many children do you have? I have four children. Is there a lot more hugging and saying of I love you than there was before? There is a lot more of that, especially with my eldest daughter, who's now a senior in college. How has the experience of flying changed for you? Because you live in Charlotte, North Carolina. You flew here to be in New York. I fly 150 times a year. I think the, the biggest thing that's changed in flying is I'm much more aware on a plane now. I, one thing I realized and, uh, after that is every plane is different, and every exit door is different. Every pathway is different. So I now check out every plane I'm on to know how the doors work, where the exit, exit routes are, where before, I didn't even check it. Where were you sitting on that flight? I was a C-15A. That's four rows behind the left wing. But I went out 10F, uh, which is an exit door, and... Never quite got on the wing or never quite got on the boat because it was already filled up by the time I got there. I understand, though, that you were the last passenger off the flight that day. You were actually helping other passengers before you got off. Was that a conscious decision? It became more of a conscious decision, but it wasn't immediately because my first thought was get off the plane. Just like everybody else, just get off the plane because water was coming in the plane. But what happened was when I got to the aisle and my turn to go, my mom, who passed away in 1997, kicked into my head and said uh, something that she said to me probably when I was a kid is, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And to me, at that just that second was take care of other people. And, Canley, it wasn't like a minute or two minutes. It was like maybe 20 seconds. And I mean, things were moving fast. But uh, I waited a few seconds to make sure we got everybody out from the back of the plane and then I made my way up. Are there people who were involved in the rescue operation that you are particularly thankful for, that you owe a debt of gratitude to, specific people? Most definitely. Um... Uh, the the folks at, on in North Bergen, the firefighters and the EMTs. Heather was my EMT. She uh, she's a special person to me because Canley, I was in a very grave situation, and she uh, she got me through that to the hospital. Of course, the folks at Palisades Medical Center, news, Nurse Bautista, Doctor Alban, Gary, and Eurice, who are at the hospital and who I, where I'll be speaking today. 
um, Gio, who's in the fire, who was a firefighter, who was there helping Henry Cordekins, who Canley was part of the rescue, and of course the New York Waterways, which Canley, none of us would be here without the New York Waterways today, and the American Red Cross, Northern New Jersey chapter. Have you formed lasting relationships with fellow passengers or with rescue personnel? Definitely with the hospital. Uh, the folks at Palisades are like my angels and brothers and sisters and and all this, and it's definitely the first responders on the New Jersey side. And, you know, some of the passengers, Barry, Leonard, and I came close because, number one, we were in the hospital together. Second, we live about a mile and a half apart from each other, didn't know that. And um, we have a common bond. He was in first class and I was in 15A, so we had totally different experiences that day, but a common bond. But I know most of the passengers, I know the ones who went to the New Jersey side a lot more than I do maybe some folks who went to the New York side, because that's where we, I spent time with them. So is it fair to say that you thought you were going to die when that plane was going down? This was it for Dave Sanderson. That's a fair assumption. When we crossed over the bridge and Captain Sullenberger said, brace for impact, I knew it was, I'll use the word dire. He used the word dire. I would say the same word. It was that point where you think, okay, this is not going to turn out well, and you better get yourself straight with whatever creator you may believe in at that moment in time. Because um, I don't think anybody on that planet, I think it was so quiet, I think everybody was so internalized that, you know, we have to get our, our stuff together right now. We have less than a minute, and things could change our, very dramatically. So uh, I know for that last moment, my, uh, my thoughts were this, this is probably going to be it. When it really hit me was the middle of that night, um, and, you know, they put me in the hospital, and they put me in a, a, a private room and sort of a different wing of the hospital, and I couldn't sleep. And before the U.S. Air Representative Doreen from Pittsburgh got there to be with me, I had maybe an hour or so, and I kept seeing the replay on the TV. I'm like, man, how lucky are we? You know, at that point, no one knew who the captain and the first officer were. Did you all have a chance to get to know Sully Sullenberger? I think a lot of us have had relationships with him. I actually had, had the uh, the honor to be with him yesterday. I passed him in the hallway of here in New York, and we had a few minutes. Uh, Sully and I uh, interact uh, at least annually because our birthdays are the same. So uh, that's uh, that's something we share together. But, uh, you know, I think everybody's got their own unique relationship with him. And I, one of the great things about it is that he and Jeff Skiles both go out of their way to make sure that if someone does reach out, they reach back. And I think there is there's a bond, not only a team bond, but sort of a, a really emotional bond because we all know that really none of us could be here today. When you're in New York, do you go out to look at the Hudson River? I did that yesterday. I, was, I went down to the Hudson yesterday, and this, for the first time, I actually looked at it from the New York side. Because since I went to New Jersey, uh, I've seen it from that side, and I go down from that side. But they took me down to the Intrepid yesterday, and I got to actually visualize where this happened. From, and it's, a, it's an amazing experience, plus it's very emotional, very emotional. When you, get, you see how wide the river really is and how fast that current is, and how cold that day was, every time I see it, I get a little, uh, a little choked up. Are you holding any grudges against Canada geese? Nothing against Canada geese. You know, they have they got to do what they got to do, and Captain's got to do what he's got to do. Dave, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Dave Sanderson is a survivor of the miracle on the Hudson. The term survivor applies to people who have a certain tale to tell, a tale of coming out the other end of a very dark place. For some people in New York City, that dark place is their home country. The Bellevue NYU program for survivors of torture works to assimilate refugees into our culture, helping them to resume normal lives through a combination of physical and emotional treatment. Dr. Alan Keller is a director of the program 
He's with us this morning in the studio along with Angel, one of the program's clients. Dr. Keller, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Angel, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me here. So, Dr. Keller, let's start with you. What's the mission of the Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture? The Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture, at its essence, is really about rebuilding lives. We provide comprehensive interdisciplinary care, medical, mental health, social and legal services to among the most vulnerable of new New Yorkers, individuals who were persecuted because of their religions, political beliefs, race, sexual orientation, or a variety of reasons. Individuals who come here just often profoundly traumatized and brutalized, and we have the responsibility, but just the great privilege to help them rebuild their lives. And every day I hear a, a lot of horrifying things, but it's also incredibly gratifying. And frankly, among the more stressful parts of my day are thinking about how we meet the demand for our, our uh, services. Yeah, which... talk to me about the demand. First of all, how many torture survivors do we know are living in New York City? Right. It is estimated that there are over half a million torture survivors living throughout the U.S. And New York City, with its large refugee population, may have more than anywhere else in the world. And in addition to caring for individuals who meet this legal definition of torture, we care for individuals who are persecuted for a variety of reasons. So, you know, one may debate about whether or not female genital mutilation is torture. I would consider it as such. But regardless, we care for individuals who uh, have health consequences as a result of that. We care for individuals who may have been persecuted by mobs uh, in their country because of their sexual orientation and that the government did nothing to do uh, to stop it. It's important for me to say that our program benefits enormously from our parent organizations. Bellevue Hospital, which is the oldest public hospital in the United States and part of the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, the largest public hospital system, and NYU School of Medicine. And because of these two incredible organizations, we are able to provide care and do education and research second to none. Angel, what's your story? You're from Cameroon, right? Yes. How long have you been in the U.S.? Um, five years. Why did you come to the U.S.? Um, first of all, I I have to to say thank you to everyone, to the personnel of uh, in Bellevue program of survival torture, especially my groups, francophone groups, Monsieur um, John my doctor, Dr. Smith. So what I want to say today is, you know, everyone have a belief. And when you believe on something, you dream about it every day. My dream was to have all children being out of suffering. In my country, I was the one who was taking care of orphans. Of orphans. Orphans, yes. We have an orphanage, and 
the number of orphans was increasing every year. And we we were trying to find out what was going on because when we have orphans, that means they don't have a mother or father. But usually they have father who cannot take care of the babies and the mother passed after giving birth. So that means it's in the hospital. We went to the hospital and we tried to see how many women pass after giving birth. We realized that it's because the hospital, the doctors and nurses, they don't have enough resources, they don't have enough material to taking care of everybody. And who supposed to to fix stuff in the hospital is the government. They have to make a budget for a hospital. And we try to motivate people to try to, to go in the street making a march to to attract the government to 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 see to to see what to do about what we want uh it was not working that way about the government in place in my country we don't have a right to talk we don't have a right to to speak so the government start now to persecute everybody who are, who are trying to to do something against their rules and and I was the one. I was lucky because I'm now in front of you talking. A lot of you were arrested, though, in Cameroon, right, for doing this? Yes, I was arrested. I'm saying I was lucky to be on front. I was lucky because I'm now here. A lot of people pass. A lot of people dead after that. What went on during that arrest for you? About the arrestation, I prefer to talk about something else. You don't want to talk about that part of what happened back in Cameroon? No. But you're here now. That's what I'm you want to talk now. about. Yes. I'm here now. What kind of help did you get here? When I got in U.S., by the program of survival of torture, they, they received me. I was some... I was somebody else. I was not the person who is talking now. I was traumatized mentally and physically. Everything was damaged. And I'm happy today because Bellevue helped me to hope. How did you find out about this program? The person who received me here told me that um, Bellevue was taking care of because when I got here I was I was not going out I was just leave, staying in the room crying all day not eating just trying to kill myself and one day the person got scared and he said listen I'm going to take you somewhere and they are going to give you some medication and when I got to Bellevue it was a good place for me because over there they received me. It was like a family. What are you doing here in New York City? Are you studying? Are you working? Are you doing both? Yeah, after my long way of therapy, I start. I studied. I did um, a home health day, um, and I was working. And after that, I studied about the CNA, the certified nurse assistant. Because I thought that it's a basic to be a nurse to help my country because I still hope to go back 
and see how, what I can do in those hospitals to help the other people who need me. What for you, Dr. Keller, has been the most eye-opening part of what you do, hearing all of these stories, living in a city like New York where you're free to speak your mind and, you know, protest if you want to protest, legally, of course. You know, I guess when I, when I first started this work, I, I was looking through the lens of the individuals we cared for as victims because what happened to them is horrific. They were victimized in the most brutal way. But I quickly learned, and my colleagues have learned, and we learn from one another and the individuals we care for, that the individuals we get to work with are survivors in the truest sense of the word. And that this, this incredible city of ours, which is, you know, the, the ultimate melting pot and just an incredibly welcoming place with a huge heart, we need to remember who we are. Our country needs to remember who we are, a country of immigrants and a country of refugees. Dr. Keller, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Angel, you are an inspiration to us all. <laughs> thank you very much. That was Dr. Alan Keller of the Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture, along with Angel, a torture survivor from Cameroon. To learn more about the program, visit survivorsoftorture.org. And that's all the time we have for today. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Veronica Volk. Have a great weekend. I'm a It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.